more as a result of encountering him in his word this morning. Well, if you've closed your Bible, please take it and turn to James chapter 4. Uh, Jeff read verses 1 to 12, but we're specifically going to be going through verses 7 to 10. And if you do not have a Bible, or you do not have the version of the Bible that we use, we often use the English Standard Version, there are some white ones on that back uh, bookshelf that are free to you if you would like one of those. So we're going to be looking at James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. And as we begin, it's really important that we remember where we were a couple of weeks ago when we left off in the book of James, because it's really going to help inform our understanding of this passage this morning. In James chapter 4, verse 6, you remember that there are these famous words that say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? Famous words, we know them well. God is going to oppose the proud, but he's going to give grace to the humble. And this is important to remember because the passage that we're looking at this morning is all about what it would look like for you, for me, to live in humility to God. The passage before us is all about submitting our lives to God. What would that look like? And is there grace extended to those who would live their lives in submission to God? And I think the answer is clearly yes. That there is this promise right from verse 6 here saying that for those who do live their lives submitting to God, grace is going to be extended to them. And so the Christian life is a life that is not meant to be lived in self-exaltation. Like the Christian life is not meant to be proud, arrogant, haughty, pompous. Any of those words to describe a Christian would be antithetical to what it would actually mean to be a Christian. The Christian life is meant to be lived in humility, namely in submission to God. And the point of this passage this morning is interesting because of how James packages it for us. So verses 7 to 10, they form what is called an inclusio. And an inclusio is something that gives you the main idea right from the beginning and so that it's unmistakable. And it's unmistakable because what it then does at the end of the passage is it gives you really the same idea. So it functions as bookends. And if you look at the back of your bulletin, you can see I wrote them down there for you. You can see there's a bookend number one and a bookend number two and then the information in between. And so these bookends are meant to help us to understand what the passage means and then fleshes out in the middle, how that gets worked out in our lives. So if you look at verse 7, the very beginning of verse 7, it's the main idea. Submit yourselves to God. So if you want the point of the passage right from the get-go, we could all go home right now. End of the sermon. Submit yourself to God. Okay, goodbye. Okay, so that's the point of the sermon. But the second part of the inclusio is found in verse 10. This other bookend that says there in verse 10, Humble yourselves. Before the Lord. So that, that's really the same idea, isn't it? That if somebody is going to submit themselves to God, what is implied is that they have humbled themselves. To submit yourself and to humble yourself before something or somebody or God is the same idea. So, your point of the sermon humble yourself before God, submit yourself to God. But then the question has to be then okay, James, how, how does this flesh out? Like, if I'm going to live my life in submission to God, 
How does this pan? How do, what do you expect from me? In any context of submission, where the Bible discusses it in regard to the church, in regard to the family, wherever it is, we ought to be clear on exactly how we are to submit. Like, what does this look like? And I think that James very clearly gives us two specific ways in which we display our submission to God. The first of which is by resisting God's enemy. And the second is by drawing near to God. But look at James's first instruction in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Big idea. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So submitting to God means resisting the devil. I mean, this is why we are all in the massive problem that we're all in, in regard to our own sin natures, right? Because way back when, thousands of years ago, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden, and they what? They don't resist the devil, do they? They completely fall to his scheme. So God, from the very beginning, he enters into covenant with Adam and Eve. They break that covenant. And with breaking the covenant, they bring upon themselves and all their posterity, you and me, the curse of the fall. All of us, by, from conception, are under the curse of the fall, right? Like the old primer used to say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That if Adam and Eve had only resisted Satan, we wouldn't have the sin in the world. We wouldn't have the sorrows. We wouldn't have the cancer. We wouldn't have the car accidents. That all of this corrodes the world. And so the Old Testament begins with a terrible story in Genesis 3 of of man falling into sin. And we all know that well, that he did not resist the devil. But the New Testament has a story in its beginning, too, that's kind of similar to the Adam and Eve story. In Matthew chapter 4, do you remember that the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness? And who's in the wilderness? Satan is in the wilderness with him. The the same old snake that was there all those thousands of years before, he comes to Jesus in the wilderness and he tempts Jesus three times, doesn't he? And every single time, what happens? Jesus resists him, right? So Adam and Eve back in the garden, they don't resist them when they were Satan. Jesus is with Satan in the wilderness, but he does resist them. He tempts him three times and Jesus quotes scripture to him and resists the temptations that are thrown at him. So Satan says, hey, Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he resists the temptation to make bread. Or, hey, Jesus, throw yourself down off of the temple. And Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. He resists Satan. Or third, Jesus, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He controls the world in a certain sense, specifically at that time. And he says, bow down to me, and I'll give it to you all. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So three times Satan tempts Jesus and three times Jesus resists Satan. Jesus did what Adam didn't do. He resists the devil. And if you're familiar with Matthew 4 where Jesus is in that trial of temptation, you know that verse 11 says, then the devil left him. So Jesus resists. He resists. He resists. And then the devil leaves You see, the devil doesn't like to be resisted. He can't stand being resisted. 
He doesn't want a challenge. He doesn't want to be resisted by you in the moments of temptation. He wants you to bite into his plan, just like Adam and Eve did all those thousands of years ago. He doesn't want you to be like Jesus. But this is James's imperative to us. If we're going to submit ourselves to God, we've got to resist the devil. So like a soldier years and years ago, standing at the gate of the city, and Satan is slugging the gates of the city with a battering ram. We resist. We hold the gates firm. We don't let him in. The Bible has a lot to say about the devil and describes him well for us, right? The Apostle Peter says that to to be watchful and sober-minded because our adversary, the devil, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So Satan roams the earth and he wants to devour people. He wants them to fall Further, he does not want them to follow after Christ. And you'll never guess what the next two words are that Peter uses after he calls Satan a roaring lion. He says, resist him. So Satan is a roaring lion. He wants to eat you for lunch. Paul talks about the schemes of the devil. He's scheming against us. He has plans. Satan is the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, all of that. And he has been watching humans. He's pretty good at knowing humans. He's been dealing with us right from the get-go. But if we're going to live our lives in constant submission to God, where we're always bending the knee to our God, then we have got to learn to resist the devil. Submission to God, in part, means not submitting to the devil. You cannot live your life submitting to God and submitting to the devil at the same time. But one thing that we have to think through a little bit is if this is even possible. So James tells us, Peter tells us, to resist the devil. Is that possible? Is James setting up for us realistic expectations that you can wake up tomorrow morning and actually face a head-on attack from the devil? Is that realistic? And I think there are a couple pieces that we have to understand if we're going to resist Satan and understand if these are realistic expectations. The first thing is that Satan is a defeated foe. The second thing is that it is ultimately not you resisting him. It is God within you resisting him. This is something that I often remind you of because it is so important. Satan is not God. He is not a God. He does not have all power. He does not have all knowledge. He does not have, he is not even comparable to our God that we have sung about this morning and we learn about in his word. He is not on the same level as God. Certainly he's the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air, a lion, all of those things. But he is not God. In fact, in the gospel, we find the good news that Satan has actually been defeated. He has been mortally wounded. Back in the Garden of Eden, again, Adam and Eve failed to in their resistance against Satan. But God made a promise to the devil that his head was going to be crushed in Genesis 3.15. So this afternoon, if you take your Bible and you open to Genesis 3.15, you will see the first promise of the gospel that God promises Satan. There is somebody who is going to come and he's going to bruise your head. And it happens. In the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, we see that the mortal blow is given to Satan. It is so powerful what Christ has done that he has actually caused the devil, this roaring lion, to walk around toothless. 
Yeah, he's powerful. But not as powerful as he once was as a result of the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, The Son of God, Jesus, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Or listen to Hebrews 2.14. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Isn't that incredible? That through his death he would render the devil to be powerless, the one who had the power of death. Jesus comes back to life. His heart starts beating again in that tomb. Satan is rendered powerless. Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus, through him. Brothers and sisters, Satan is this lion, but he has been triumphed over by the lion of Judah, the true lion, the great lion. He has been rendered powerless. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And in your life right now, you have got to know who you are to resist. And you are resisting a creature that has been mortally wounded. And so know that the guy that you're resisting is a defeated foe, but you also need to know that the power to resist this defeated foe does not come from picking yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. It comes through the power of God within you. You cannot resist Satan in your own strength. You need God's strength. The Apostle Paul says this in first, or Apostle John says this in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, right? The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So if you have the Spirit of Christ within you, indwelling in you and empowering you, he who is in you is greater than the devil. And so that battle wages for every single one of you. As you wake up, you go home this afternoon, you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to work, then battle immediately begins where you feel as though the onslaught is coming on you. Well, you resist that foe that has been mortally wounded and you do it in the power of Christ. The scheming arrows of Satan are being slung around our heads and we hold firm by God's grace. And we depend on His strength, not on our own strength. After all, Does not the Bible say, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the applied answer is nobody, not even the devil himself. So cling to the promise. You resist the devil and the power of Christ. He will flee from you. This is the first part, James indicates, of how we humbly submit to our God. Second, draw near to God. So if I'm going to submit to God well in my life, I'm going to draw near to him, and he's going to draw near to me. So on the one side, I'm resisting the devil, but then on the other side, I'm drawing near always to God. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Is that a wonderful promise, or what? Is Is that sweet to your ears? Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So isn't it incredible that living a life of submission to God is living a life not in distance to him, but living a life of nearness to God. If if I'm going to properly submit my life to God, it's not going to be away from him. It'll be close to him. Submission is terribly difficult from a distance. 
When you are distant from God, you are likely not to submit to God. A lot of you know we just got a puppy. And so we're in the throes of teaching that puppy what we expect from him. And we have a lot of expectations. Um, He needs to be in a certain spot. Uh, We'd like him to go to the bathroom in a certain spot. Although that's not happening um, at this point. Uh, But different things. Sitting and all of the rest, right? But those of you who have done any kind of training with a dog, you know that it's one thing to get your dog when he's right in front of you. Sit. Sit. Lay down. Lay down. It's much easier when they're a few feet away, right? But what about when they're 50 feet away? Or 100 feet away? And they're off playing with other dogs or whatever they're doing. And you say, sit. They're not going to do it unless you have put heavy, heavy training. Submission is difficult from a distance. But when they're close, for whatever reason, whether they're expecting a treat from you or they're maybe afraid a little bit of your response to their disobedience, submission is always more difficult from a distance. And when we're far away from God, the likelihood of humble, consistent submission is far less likely than when we have drawn near to Him. And so we must draw near to God so we can live this way. But then the question has to be, then how am I going to do this? If, if God's expectation is that I'm going to be close to Him, how do I get drawn in to Him? And Jesus has made a way for us, hasn't He? That we can draw near to God because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And it's through Christ that we draw near to God. And specifically, this happens by publicly and privately being in the Word of God. If Jesus is the Word, which the Bible is clear about, and when the Word is read and it is preached and it is taught, we encounter Jesus within the Word of God, thus drawing near to God through the Word of Christ. So this is both a private and a public matter for all of us. Do you have a private time of worship every day where you draw near to God through the Word? You open His Word and you read what He has to say to you. Bible in lap, in hand, savoring the truths of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, when the Word of God speaks, God speaks. Do you want to hear God's audible voice to you? Read the Bible out loud. The Word of God speaks. God speaks. And then what? Then we respond to Him in prayer, right? We hear God speak to us through His Word. It is a good and right and perfect Word. And like any conversation where we have heard Him speak to us through His Word, we respond to Him in prayer. We have conversation with Him, praising God for who He is and what He has done, confessing our sin to Him, thanking Him for His work and His good gifts, and asking that His will be accomplished in our lives. Our private devotional time every day is a necessary discipline if we are going to draw near to God on a daily basis. And you can case study this in your own life, can't you? But can't you look on these recent months, and if you have spent regular time with the Lord and have drawn near to Him through His Word, there's a nearness there, right? But if week goes by, after week goes by, month goes by, and you've spent no time with God through the Word, you will not feel close to Him. We also publicly draw near to God, though, by gathering with our brothers and sisters on each Lord's Day to worship. Because we gather to hear the Word, which draws us all near. So we gather to hear it preached. This is why you're here this morning, right? To worship our God, and within the context of our worship, we hear it preached. 
We sing the word. We uh, should pray the word. We see the word in the Lord's table and baptism. So the word of God is central to all that we do within worship in the context of Windsor Christian Fellowship, as I think that it should be, that the word of God is held in its rightful place. And as the word is heard, it produces something within us. The Bible promises that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so if you're hearing this word, it's only going to produce faith in you which draws you nearer to God. And so not just on a personal level, privately, in your home, in your closet, but as a corporate body, as a church, we draw near to God through His Word. We, we become closer to God as a family of believers through the Word of God. But I want you to see a couple things about this, that if we're going to submit to God by drawing near to Him, there is a responsibility and a disposition that I think that we ha- should have, that the text pushes us toward here, if we're going to truly draw near. Look at verse 8 again. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So our responsibility, confess and repent. Now why does James have to tell us to draw near to God? Because we've drifted from God. This is the clear implication. We have, we have to draw near because we have drifted, drifted, obviously, according to verse 8 here, into sin. And this is what James describes for us in the rest of verse 8. That you and I have dirty hands as a result of our sin. We have dirty hearts as a result of our sin. I mean, again, you notice how James refers to us as sinners and double-minded. That we're acting so much out in our sin that the word sinner actually becomes a great descriptor of who we are. And being double-minded to the point where we're like the goddess Janus and we have faces going either way. And our responsible as we draw near to God is to confess confess and to repent of our sin, to confess and to repent of our double-mindedness. The deeds that we commit with our hands we need cleansing. The thoughts that we commit in our hearts, we need purification. And so if you and I are going to draw near to God, as He obviously wants us to do, then we need to confess. We need to repent of our Sins. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a promise. But we need to confess our sins, repent of them, to turn our back against them, as it were, on our sins, to rebel against our sin. And so we have this responsibility to confess and to repent. But there's also a disposition that James gives us here. So this is your action, your responsibility. You've got to repent. You've got to confess your sin. But what kind of heart goes with that? Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So obedience to this kind of verse is not going to help your self-esteem. To be wretched, to mourn, to weep, to stop laughing over the casual sin of the world and the casual sin of ourselves for our joy to be turned to gloom? Like, isn't this the opposite of what we want? So what's the purpose? Like, this doesn't sound like what I should feel upon confession of my sin. 
I shouldn't be gloomy. Shouldn't be sad. I shouldn't be mourning. Like we want to feel good about ourselves. Like doing this in verse 9, won't that just make the situation worse to feel bad about myself? Won't this bring us to such a low disposition that we couldn't even function? Like think about it. He calls us to mourn. And what does Jesus say? He says, Blessed are those that mourn, for they'll be comforted. Mourning over how destitute and sinful we are is not left there alone. It comes with the comfort of Christ. Or you think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so godly grief, genuine grief, mourning, sadness over our sin is fantastic because it produces what is needed. It produces repentance. Friends, can I, can I ask you, when was the last time your sin brought you to tears? Like when was the last time you considered your wickedness what you have done with your hands, what you have done in your heart. And it's caused you to weep and to mourn over what you have done. Obviously, in our day, we, we've lost that kind of biblical concept or thing that you see them often do with the sackcloth and ashes, where they would be totally laid bare and laid low and humble, and they would put the sackcloth on and these ashes over their head, just illustrating how deeply how deeply hurt they were or mourning or whatever the situation was. But in our day, kind of the problem with losing that has been that we've lost the spirit of humility and brokenness that accompanies sackcloth and ashes. So grieve over your sin. Mourn. Don't laugh and have a casual understanding of sin, but how detrimental how it separates you from God, how you cannot draw close to God with all of this sin in your life. Let your joy be turned to gloom. So we grieve over it, but that produces repentance. And we mourn over it, but we mourn as those who will be soon comforted. And so verses 8 and 9, if you just read through them and glance at them again, you don't see that there is much hope. Or at least it doesn't seem like there's much hope there. You sinners... You double-minded, you need cleansing, you need purification, you need to mourn and weep and all of that. Like it sounds hopeless. But don't miss this. All of this is part of maintaining or growing in our submission to God. And although verses 8 and 9 can be hard pills to swallow, where it leaves us in those sackcloth and ashes, what does verse 10 say? Humble yourselves before God, and He will exalt you. So the person who is living in submission to God, who has humbled himself before his God, doesn't live a life of self-exaltation. They live a life of submission and humility to their God, and then they let God be the one who's going to exalt, right? Like they live a life of submission and humility to their God, and God exalts the humble. This is the whole testimony of Scripture. Again, James is just reiterating so much of what Jesus has already said, where Jesus said, whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled, and whoever humbles himself is going to be exalted. 
Or listen to Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. So the call for all of us this morning is to submit our lives to God, to humble ourselves before our God, to lay ourselves low before Him. And He's the one to lift us up. He's the one who will exalt you. But you know, this life of submission and the exaltation of this person is so beautifully modeled for us in Jesus. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's always helpful for me to see Jesus model what the Bible's requiring of me. And Jesus models this in Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, it was through humbling himself that Christ would be exalted. Submitting himself All through his life, you read the book of John and over and over, I came not to do my will, I came to do the will of my Father. I have submitted to my Father, I have submitted to my Father. I'm going to do what he wants me to do all the way to the point of death for you, for me. And then God exalts him. Follow Jesus in this. Humble yourselves. Submit yourselves to God. Submit yourself as Christ submitted Himself to live that life of obedience, of submission and humility before your God. And He will exalt you. And you might be here today and you've you've never submitted your life to Christ. You've never genuinely bowed the knee to Jesus. The Bible says that God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. The gospel call has gone out to all men that everybody needs to hear about what Jesus has done for them. That we need to know about our plight and how we're not holy and how we are not living our lives in submission to God. And then we need to hear, bend the knee to this God. Bend the knee to this Lord. It is the only way to God through Jesus. You may not bow the knee to Jesus in this life. But you will one day bow the knee to Him as this passage that I read describes that at the name of Jesus, every single knee is going to bow to the exalted Lord. Friend, can we rightly say that we're submitting to God if we're not resisting Satan? Are you succumbing actively? You're not resisting Him. There's not 
the fight, I would ask you to pray, to ask God to enable you to be able to resist Satan within your life and to gather around. That's what's so wonderful about being part of a community of believers where we gather together, tight-knit, close, and we stand at that door together as the battering ram is beating in. Remember, Satan is a mortally wounded foe. And also remember that Christ's power in you is what will ultimately hold him off till he flees away. And can we rightly say that we are submitting to God if we're not drawing near to him? Drawing near in the word through private and public worship. Isn't it remarkable to you that God would want to be near us? That God would want this kind of relationship with us. The the one who created all things wants to be with us who so often just feel like a worm in comparison to our God. And one day, for all of eternity, what we've read this morning is going to be perfected in all of us. You know, Revelation chapter 21, in the new heavens and the new earth, where God literally tabernacles, He dwells among His people in perfect relationship never needing to cleanse our hands anymore, never needing to purify our hearts anymore, that there's actually no temple there. We don't need to even draw near to God through a temple, through a building, that we're just with Him, always together, forever with our Lord. Adam destroyed that relationship. Christ has given the opportunity for us to be restored in that relationship. And one day forever, we will all be there together perfectly drawn to our God, living perfectly in submission to our God. And I look forward to that day. Let's pray.